we have finished Brunetto Latini's great prophecy of what will happen to the pilgrim and the poet who is back in the wings behind him. Those nasty deplorables will finally put an end to everything. Factionalism will overtake Florence and our poet will go off somehow eaten alive by all of these parties who are out to do him in because of all the good he's done. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk through Dante's comedy. We are in Canto 15. We are in the third circle of the violent, which is the seventh circle of hell. I should say the third ring of the violent in the seventh circle of hell. Those who have been violent against and toward God. And we are with, well, so goes my assumption, the homosexuals. We have met the great Brunetto Latini, the poet who Dante at least wants us to think is his teacher, he has offered a prophecy of sorts, and now we come to the answer from our pilgrim. Lines 79 through 99 of Canto 15 of Inferno. If all my queries were satisfied, I replied to him, you would not yet be gone from all that's human. Because my memories are solid, it weighs me down, the dear and good image of you as a father, back when you were in the world, and hour by hour taught me how a man makes himself eternal. And given how grateful I am while I'm alive, I must express all that in my own language. I'm writing down the story you tell me about my life's trajectory, and I'm saving it, with some other texts, to be glossed by a lady who knows how if I ever get to her. And I would like you to know this. My conscience doesn't bug me. I am prepared for whatever fortune brings. These sorts of pledges aren't new to my ears. Let fortune spin her wheel however she likes. Let the deplorable have his hoe. Then my master glanced back at me over his right cheek and said, well heard is well noted. That's where we're going to stop. Just before the end of the passage, Brunetto's got a little more to say. So we're going to stop right here with the pilgrim's response to Brunetto and follow your star and all that he has to say. I've got several things to say about this passage. It doesn't necessarily break itself into easy bits. So let's just take the points one by one. Here's the first one. Brunetto is identified at the beginning of the pilgrim's response as an exile. If all my queries were satisfied, the pilgrim says, you would not yet be gone from all that's human. In other words, you wouldn't have left the world of the living if I could get everything I wanted. Remember, the pilgrim has already said he would like to get his queries filled, and in doing so, he can even sit down with Brunetto, which Brunetto warns him off from doing. But he says that there is one yet that cannot ever be fulfilled, and that is that Brunetto is dead, and so, we would say, an exile of sorts. He's in hell, an exile from all that is human. Brunetto and our pilgrim, and the poet behind him, are very similar. They're twinned in so many ways. They're two political leaders. Don't forget that Dante was a political leader in Florence. They're two vernacular poets at this point. They're two exiles. They're both in exile. Notice all the twinning that's going on here. Remember, in a canto that started with two 
double similes with twinned, twinned similes. All of this twinning surely adds up to something. The poet is signaling us that these two are alike in some fundamental way. And while I would caution you to not take Brunetto as an authority on what's right in the world, I still will say that there are ways in which Brunetto and the pilgrim and the poet behind him are being mirrored in each other. And here we have a kind of plaintive and also poetic way of saying, hey, Brunetto, you're in exile. Okay, second point. Notice that the pilgrim responds to Brunetto's rather boorish and perhaps racist political imagery of Florence with questions of paternalism. The pilgrim says, because my memories are solid, it weighs me down. The dear and good image of you as a father, back when you were in the world and hour by hour, taught me how a man makes himself eternal. The pilgrim has taken the political strife and recast it as paternal love. Now, you remember that the real Dante, the poet sitting back behind, lost his father at a fairly early age. And there seems to be a way in which that poet, at least if we want to psychologize the text, is often looking for a father figure and finding them in people like Ferranata, who is a mirror image of this passage. And here, a better father image than Farinata. Farinata was a, a kind of, uh, what can we say, a kind of familial link between the poet and this warlord who was on the other side of the conflict in Canto 10 by the time the whole thing comes to an end. But here there seems more affection. And I wonder always when I see this passage, how much affection is an answer to political strife? I mean, after all, Brunetto goes off and, you know, launches himself into this giant diatribe about the Fiasolans coming down from the hills and ruining the good Roman stock. And the pilgrim responds very emotionally, A, with, you're in exile, you're dead, you're in exile in hell from the world of the living, and B, you were like a dad to me. You were my father. And that dear and good image of you as a father must be burned into the pilgrim and the poet's mind. And so there's this way in which all that political falderall comes back here to an image of paternal care. Is that an answer? Is that intentional? Is the pilgrim learning something. That is, the earlier prophecies of political strife in Florence and exile from Chaco and Ferranata did not end at this place. Now, after we've had those prophecies out of Chaco amongst the gluttons and out of Ferranata amongst the heretics, we come to this one and it all seems different because the answer is not fear or to turn to Virgil for help. Instead, the answer is to stare the prophecy in the face and admit your emotional connection to the one giving it. Is that a character change in the pilgrim? I think it might be. On to the third point. 
He says, in the world, hour by hour, you, Brunetto, taught me how a man makes himself eternal. This is a very worldly notion of eternality. We're talking about fame. We're talking about how to make yourself eternal. Well, <laughs> you make sure that your name is known forever. And remember, Brunetto's first words practically are to say his own name. In my real life that pays the mortgage, I am a cookbook author, and I have been trained in a lot of media training <laughs> as a cookbook author. And one of the first things they always say is say your name and say it again and again and make sure you start with your name and make sure you end with your name. Why? Because, of course, the whole point of doing any kind of publicity is to say your name. And I always think about that with Brunetto. I always think, well, he must have been media trained because he's got his name, Brunetto Latino, in the text, or as we are more commonly calling him, Brunetto Latini. He's got his name right out there in the front. <laughs> you know, he arrives. This is a very secular canto in so many ways because this is all about how to retain your fame, how to make yourself eternal. How? Writing in the vernacular, writing encyclopedic poetry inside of a narrative framework. That's what the comedy is. That's what the tesseretto is. They are encyclopedias of knowledge. We're not quite there yet in Inferno, partly because, as I said last time, Inferno is about unlearning what you've learned. It's about moving away from partisan politics, about moving away from a certain kind of poetics, and moving towards something different. So we're not quite at the encyclopedic nature of comedy yet. But believe me, we're going to get there when we hit Purgatorio and Paradiso. The poem is going to become much more a kind of rehearsal of all that is known and thought, and some of which is just made up by Dante in a brilliant way, but still a rehearsal of knowledge in a narrative framework of the journey toward, as Dante said, ka, or home, in this very plain song and mm, almost childish dialect in this canto already. But here, the notion of worldly fame, it's coming up. Isn't it interesting that A, it comes up here amongst those who've been violent against God. Interesting that the question of fame comes up here. And isn't it interesting in the cantos of those violent against God, we have some of the most secular feeling of the entire comedy. Taught me how a man makes himself eternal. You know how a man makes himself eternal according to Dante's theology? By taking the sacraments. By going to confession. By taking the mass. By going to the sacraments. Man doesn't make himself eternal by writing, by being a great poet, or does he? There's that little slip of doubt inside, and it's so fascinating to me that amongst the most secular thoughts in all of comedy, they're here. Amongst those who are blasphemous and those who have done violence against God in various ways. Let's pass on to the fourth point. Pilgrim goes on. I'm writing down the story you tell me. We're getting this idea now of the pilgrim as a writer, and this is very important. We didn't necessarily have this early on. Go back to Kento's one, two, three. We have this notion of the pilgrim as a pilgrim, somebody who's walking a journey. Here, we're starting to have this notion of somebody who's walking a journey and keeping a diary, writing it down. I'm writing down the story you tell me about my life's trajectory, and I'm saving it with some other texts. I love the caginess 
right there with some other text. Is that Dante's own texts, like the banquet, like the convivio, and like the the new life, or those other things that Dante has written, and some of the poetry he's written? Is that what he means? Or does he mean other texts like, oh, I don't know, there's Virgil, like Virgil's text. What is? What are these other texts? heavily debated in the commentary, probably above my pay grade, don't know, and I would also argue can't know. I'm saving it with some other text to be glossed by a lady who knows how if I ever get to her. This bit of glossing, I'm going to save this for Beatrice, and ultimately she is going to be the arbiter, the glosser, the the, the, the monastic voice that writes in the margin. I, just, I, I have to save this for later in comedy, but just think about that, a woman glossing a text. If you don't think that's explosive, (laughs) you're not paying attention. I mean, today, of course, of course women gloss text. In the Middle Ages, no, women do not gloss texts. And that he is saving this for a lady to gloss? Oh, fascinating. But also notice, margins, glossing, things that happen on the side. Where is Dante walking? On the margin of the stream. What is happening here? There are marginalia being developed because he's quoting Brunetto's text about being lost in a wood because Brunetto is quoting his own text. There's glossing on top of glossing and marginalia on top of marginalia and marginalia finding itself inside this text. And well, do I have to point it out again? It's twinning like crazy, duplicating, becoming redundant, being mirrors of itself. And here, finally, there is an end stop. That is a lady who's going to be able to offer the final gloss. Okay, next point. Why that phrase from the pilgrim? He's just going to be glossed by a lady who knows how. If I ever get to her, Canto 15 is a strange canto of doubt. Remember earlier, there's the question of the the levy or the embankment that Dante is walking along with Virgil, and he makes the comment, the master builder, whoever that was, whoever that was, was God. God created hell. And now, if I ever get to her, Virgil promised you you were going to get to her. You know you're going to get to her. It's all been foretold. Virgil... (laughs) Go back to Canto 2 of your own work, Pilgrim. You'll see it right there. What if I ever get to her? What is the doubt in Canto 15? It's interesting that this is a Canto in which a contemporary writer meets a contemporary writer, and here doubts become expressed. Is it writerly anxiety? Is that why doubt is permitted into this canto? Is Dante the poet back there trying to goose us to the notion that if you're worried about worldly fame, you're going to fall into states of doubt? Maybe. Is there some way in which the writerly anxiety is foregrounded in the in the encounter with Brunetto? Maybe. These are theological doubts, not writerly doubts. If I ever get to her, it, in, in the rhetoric of comedy, that's a theological doubt. And the master builder, whoever that was, that's definitely a theological doubt. Is there something about Brunetto's emphasis on follow your star and you're going to be a star, to use a modern word, you're going to be a star and your success is assured and all that stuff. Is there something in that that makes the pilgrim temporarily forget God and maybe the poet behind the pilgrim? Because the master builder, whoever that was, 
is not the pilgrim speaking, but the poet writing, uh, describing the scene itself. So is there something about worldly fame that leads to theological doubts? Maybe. If so, the poet is acting out a very complex game here. Let's pass on. I would like you to know this, the pilgrim says, my conscience doesn't bug me. I'm prepared for whatever fortune brings. Wow, this is bravado. These sorts of pledges aren't new to my ears. All this bit about exile and strife and political strife and people eating me alive. You know what? I know all this stuff. Why? Well, Chaco. Why? Well, Farinata. And why? Well, the poet's own life. So all of this stuff is not new to me and that I am prepared for whatever fortune brings. Wow. I'm not sure that I'm prepared for whatever fortune brings. You have to ask yourself, is the poet becoming more secure in his craft? And is the pilgrim becoming more secure in his journey? And if so, why is there doubt then in this canto? Or is this mm, bravado? Is this just talking out of the side of your mouth to act like you're ready, but you're not really ready? I don't know. I'm not clear on it. It seems to me like we are supposed to see this as character development from the pilgrim and that the pilgrim is becoming more certain. I am prepared for whatever fortune brings. And we have to hear the poet behind saying that at the same moment, I think. And yet it's interesting that this is a canto in which basic certain theological certainties are doubted. You're going to get to that lady who's going to gloss your text ultimately. And let me just tell you, if you don't know comedy, you're not going to like the way she glosses it. But that's a long way off from us right now. Again, I see this as an attempt at character development out of the poet for the pilgrim. The pilgrim is becoming more certain on his journey, more sure of what's about to happen to him. And yet at the same time, uh, I wonder about it in a canto filled with statements of doubt. That last line from the pilgrim, let the deplorable have his hoe. It's a difficult line. The eminent commentator Charles Singleton couldn't figure it out. He says something about there must be an aphorism back behind here that we can't trace. It's so opaque. Let the deplorable have his hoe. What? What does that mean? In 1982, the critic Amilcare Iannucci proposed a solution to this, and it may be right. He said that Saturn was often seen as an old farmer carrying a hoe. And if that's the case, then in other words, Saturn is a representation of time, generally in mythology, the god Saturn. So this thing, let the deplorable have his hoe, would be something like, let time do its worst, or let time do its thing. Let time do whatever time's got to do, because here we have this, I translate it as deplorable because I've used that word so much, but maybe lowly peasant is another way to say it. Let the peasant have his hoe. Let them be who they have to be. (laughs) Let time be what it has to be. But what's important here, I think, is that the pilgrim ends in a rhetorical flourish. Let the deplorable have his hoe. That is similar to the flourish that Brunetto gives about the goats and the grass. Remember in the last episode, let the the green grass stay away from the goats. Remember that bit? And I said, wow, he just reaches this rhetorical height and sits up there with this aphorism that is difficult to parse. The pilgrim does the same thing. He mirrors Brunetto. He comes up 
to an aphorism that is difficult to parse. Let the, let the lowly person, let the peasant, let the deplorable have his hoe. It becomes incredibly opaque right there with an aphorism, a pithy saying that doesn't actually help me in know what's going on. Notice the twinning between Brunetto and the Pilgrim. Notice how they end in similar places. Notice how they vault their rhetoric up. And this, let the deplorable or let the peasant have his hoe, comes after the bravado of let fortune spin her wheel however she likes. So that bravado is offered, it's rather plain stated, and then we vault up into this rhetorical, well, I would even say excess. Even though you may be ready for what is about to happen, you still have rhetoric at your command. And I wouldn't argue that it's that you have rhetoric at your command and it's failing you. In other words, it's hard to interpret, so it's failing you. That, for me, is not the point. The point is that even in the face of bad fortune, you can still use highfalutin rhetorical strategies. Even in the face of real life tragedy, you can still fall onto your rhetoric and use it. It's that same bit about using highfalutin rhetoric with very vernacular and coarse diction. It's that using rhetorical strategies, argumentation strategies, poetic strategies, etc., but using very coarse language inside of them, but keeping paraphrases and whatever other rhetorical strategies you've got it strikes me that it's all working in a same vein here. And finally, the last bit. At that, my master glanced back at me over his right cheek. So there's Virgil. Finally, Virgil. He's been referred to a couple times, that guy who I'm following. And who is this that's leading along the track, according to Brunetto? He's, he's been thumbed at a couple times. But now here he suddenly appears. And this is Virgil's line in the canto. My master, Virgil, glanced back at me over his right cheek and said, well heard is well noted. Okay, Virgil looks back and also offers a rather pithy aphorism. Notice what Virgil said. Virgil said that if you hear it well, you note it well. In other words, we're back to glossing. We're back to writing in the margin. We're back to illuminating text. We're back to explaining text. We're back to text making more texts. If you hear something well, you write it down. So rhetoric leads to more rhetoric. Rhetoric leads to additional bits of that same rhetoric. Dante is quoting Brunetto throughout. Dante is asking for his text to be glossed by a lady. There's a twinning of text. There's a whole question about fame and marginalia. And in fact, glossed texts are more famous than unglossed texts. You know this. Yeah, listen, I, I, I'm a professional reader from a PhD program, right? Long ago. And I think there are two kinds of books. I tell this to my husband, Bruce, all the time. There are pencil-worthy books, and there are books that don't need a pencil. I read both kinds of books. Some books need a pencil. I'm looking at the stack that's on my desk right now. I have uh, the last books of the Odyssey by Zachary Mason, and I have Edward Dorn's long, weird, druggy dream poem, Gunslinger, up here. Both of those are pencil-worthy texts. I would read those with a pencil in hand because I'd want to be writing things in the margin and figuring out how they work and trying to call references back inside the text. 
But then I have other things that are not. I'm reading a book right now on the history of the brain, the idea of the mind, the idea of the brain. And I'm not reading it with a pencil. It's it's a it's just a informational read for me. It's about how you over the years people have imagined the brain differently, and that notion of how they picture the brain as a clock, as a computer, as a piece of evolutionary history, as a um, calendar, as a circuit board. The way that they imagine the brain is then controls the way they experiment and try to figure out the brain. In other words, you have to first imagine the brain before you can even develop an experiment to figure out what the brain is and what the mind is inside the brain. Fascinating work. I'm just reading it for me and for informational stuff. So again, we come down to this notion of Virgil offering his pithy aphorism that, hey, if you if you hear it and you hear it right and it's good and you're really listening, then you'll write it down. So writing leads to more writing. That, of course, is the very heart of fame for an author, that I will be read and that I will be quoted by other people and other people will take what I write and turn it into what they write and that there's a chain of references inside writing, which is the very heart of fame. It's questionable here whether Virgil is meaning that Dante should listen to himself bragging about how he is daring fortune to spin the wheel or whether Virgil is offering affirmation to Dante's let the deplorable have his hoe or let the peasant have his hoe. In other words, you've really listened to Brunetto and you have taken in what he said and you have noted it with your own words. It's questionable why Virgil is saying this. Is he saying this to like, hey, you just dared fortune to spin the wheel. Listen to yourself, buddy, and keep track of it. Or is he saying, hey, pilgrim, you did good. You listened to Brunetto and you responded in kind and you responded well to him. Either way, my point is that it's about noting what is heard. It's about glossing, which this whole thing is about, which happens in the margins, which is where Dante is walking, which you know all this already, which is twinning all over the place because you're writing in the margin of a text that reflects what's inside the text out into the margin, which then ties back to homosexuality, which then gets us toward the next and last episode of Canto 15. So subscribe to this podcast. Rate it. If you write a comment, that would be fabulous about the com- about the podcast. You can drop down at Google or an Amazon or on uh, Apple and you can write a comment. You can't on Spotify and certain other places. Pocket Casts, you can't really rate it. But other places you can. That would be fabulous. Connect with me on Twitter. You can hashtag Walking with Dante. Hashtag me. I'll find you. We can follow each other back. We can talk more about Dante and come back next time because we're not done with Brunetto. He's got more to say. And what he has to say, hmm, It's not going to put a good fine point on the end of this canto. Instead, it's going to torque the canto, this whole wild, messy canto, in another direction entirely. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is Walking with Dante.